Church, if you have your Bibles, would you open them with me to Judges chapter 14? Judges 14, and this morning we pick back up with the story of Samson. So if you were with us last week, we, we noted God's just wrath as his people once again rejected him, performing evil deeds and worshiping the idols of their Canaanite neighbors. We also noted the richness of God's grace as he promised them a savior, despite the fact that they hadn't asked for one and seemingly didn't care, content to live in subjugation to both sin and their Philistine oppressors. Israel never cried out, yet Yahweh still sought them out, providing a nameless, childless woman with a son he promised would begin the deliverance of Israel from the hands of the Philistines. And church, in this act, we, we noted the light of God's promise, the light leading us then to the birth of another promised son, born this time to a virgin, pledged to be married, whose name is Jesus, for he came to save his people from their sins. Just as God sent Samson to a people that did not care to be saved, Christ was rejected by his own and crucified. And yet, because of his great love for us, he overcame the grave and gave life to his own, leading them to see their sin in need of a Savior. Church, in this great salvation, God works for his glory. As he gives us life, he opens our eyes. He leads us to an awareness of need and conviction of sin. He fulfills his promise to save. Why? Because he's God. And because his salvation is so very great. And this is the, church, this is the truth of what we've seen running throughout this story that we've been reading together, which I believe we're going to encounter again this morning as we look now at Judges 14. So if your Bibles are open, Judges 14, let me invite you to follow along as I read now from verse 1. Judges 14.1. Samson went down to Timnah and saw there a young Philistine woman. When he returned, he said to his father and mother, I've seen a Philistine woman in Timnah now. Get her for me as my wife. His father and mother replied, Isn't there an acceptable woman among your relatives or among our people? Must you go to the uncircumcised Philistines to get a wife? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me. She's the right one for me. His parents didn't know that this was from the Lord, who was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines, for at that time they were ruling over Israel. Let's pause here for just a moment. Now, I don't know about you, but when I was studying this text in preparation for today, for those of you who may have been reading in preparation for this morning, this verse, verse 4, really troubled me. I actually spoke to Melinda about this in the days leading up to writing this message because it was freaking me out. I mean, what are we to make of our narrator's explanation for all that's taking place here, namely Samson's request for a Philistine wife, that, that this, this request, this was from the Lord. Clearly, Samson's desire for this Timnite woman is in direct violation of God's commands given us in Exodus 34, 16. And then repeated in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 3, where Israel was warned, do not intermarry with these pagan unbelievers in the land of Canaan. Don't intermarry with them. Don't give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. And the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. So Samson's desire for this girl went against God's law. And it also went against Jewish tradition. At this point, marriages were arranged as parents would put 
people together. This is evidence for us in the scriptures, Genesis 24. We see it again in Genesis 38. And, and yet our narrator informs us that this was from the Lord who was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines. How are we to understand this verse, church? And I believe it's essential we do because it serves as the key to everything that follows up through to the end of chapter 15. How is God behind this? And I believe the truth, the answer, is the truth of God's providence. The answer is found in the truth of God's providence. And so let me first show you why I believe this. So then as we continue to make our way through this story, then the how will become clearer. So why? Why first? Why does this reveal God's providence? And to see this truth, I believe we need to remember God's promise made to Manoah's wife that we saw last week. You are going to conceive and have a son. The boy is to be a Nazarite set apart to God from birth. And he, here's the key, will begin the deliverance of Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Church, at the end of our time together last week, we noted God's partial or initial fulfillment of this word as recorded in verse 24 of chapter 13, where the woman, we're told, gave birth to a boy and named him Samson. He grew and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him while he was in Mahane Dan between Zorah and Eshtael. So, in fulfillment of his word, God provided the woman with a son. He blessed the boy and his spirit began to stir in him. In other words, God's spirit began to direct Samson to do that which he otherwise would not have done. It's a fact that becomes even more startling as the story progresses because it suggests that, that Samson's visit to Timnah was an expression of divinely induced restlessness and the Timnite woman an agent of God's grand design. So church, what I believe our narrator is clearly communicating here in verse 4 is the fact that God had promised to deliver his people. And he had done so by informing a woman that she would have a baby and that that child would be the deliverer. So God has given his word that he's going to save his people. Despite the fact that they don't want to be saved and they don't see the need to be saved, they're clearly content in Canaan. They're quite happy. They don't care about Yahweh, but he still cares for them. And so in fulfillment of his promise, God directs his saving agent to initiate a sequence that will ultimately result in his people's salvation. So God is behind these activities described here, verse 1 through 3. Now, I'm sure that if I can't see eyebrows being raised, there are some that would like to be raised at this point. Because the text also states that Samson went, right? Samson saw, Samson demanded, Samson insisted. Everything happening here is also clearly attributed to our deliverer. So what are we to make then of this apparent contradiction? And this church is where I believe God's providence is revealed. The truth that God is cooperating with created things in every action, directing their distinctive properties to cause them to act as they do and directing them to fulfill his purposes. Here, God's providence in Samson's story, the narrator clearly reveals God's hand in his people's salvation. As God takes Samson, this man with no respect for his parents or for God's claims on his life, for that matter, given to self-serving and rebellious actions, and he, God, directs Samson to fulfill his plans even as Samson is acting out of the impulses of his sinful flesh. Why? Because God promised to save his people. Church, this is what makes God's salvation so great. Because contrary to what we may think, we don't deserve saving. 
We aren't worthy of rescue, and therefore God has need to provide for us. If Scripture's story is to be believed, and history's story, I think, bears this out, people are broken, and irreparably so. We can't fix ourselves, solve our problems. We are sinful, weak, selfish, arrogant. Our best efforts, those that we champion in the philanthropist or the the martyr even, never flow from hearts that are desperate for another's good because we're incapable in and of ourselves of such love. And yet, the good news of God's great salvation is that despite our animosity, despite our rejection, He accomplished our salvation while we were His enemies because Jesus died at the hand of sinners to save sinners. Friends, God was at work in Samson's Timnite affair to fulfill his promised salvation. This is why. This is why I believe all that we're going to be studying today attests to God's providence, his sovereignty over all of life, like the the little window in Guess Who that remains open. You're going to close all the other ones, but God has promised there's one, and he knows which one, and he will lead us to that one. This is God's sovereignty and this is why we see it so then the question how how do we see this displayed in Samson's story well let's keep reading and we'll see look at verse 5 Samson went down to Timnah together with his father and mother as they approached the vineyards of Timnah suddenly a young lion came roaring toward him the spirit of the Lord came upon him in power so that he tore the lion apart with his bare hands as he might have torn a young goat (laughs) but he told neither his father nor his mother what he'd done. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and he liked her. So right off here, right off the bat, our narrator reminds us of God's strength. God's strength is on his way to speak to this fiance, possibly for the very first time ever, because earlier we're told that he'd only seen a Philistine woman. Samson suddenly set upon by the mightiest of creatures in the most unexpected of places. This lion comes rushing out of a vineyard, but as it does, we're also told that God's spirit rushed upon Samson and enabled him to perform the supernatural. He, he, he rips this lion apart with his bare hands, and the analogy is quite vivid, isn't it? Now, I, I've never, thankfully, I've never torn a baby goat apart with my hands, nor have I tried, for that matter, but I have seen many lions, and so the point that our author is making here couldn't be clearer. In the face of certain death, God's strength makes all opposition appear as nothing. And what I find incredible about this encounter is not only Samson's show of strength, but it's how he also remains silent about it. You you would think, I mean, after such a display, that that he would have said something. I mean, because it's rare that we encounter such displays of strength. And yet Samson remains curiously quiet. It's a point that's led some commentators to conclude that this was also of the Lord, as was his strength. And so our author here reminds us of God's strength in a unique way, before he then returns our focus to Samson's sinful desires, because there we read at the end of verse 7 that he liked the Timnite. And then we get to verse 8, where we read, sometime later, when he went back to marry her, he turned aside to look at the lion's carcass. In it was a swarm of bees and some honey, which he scooped out with his hands and ate as he went along. When he rejoined his parents, he gave them some, and they too ate it. But he did not tell them that he had taken the honey from the lion's carcass. So, set against God's strength here, our author next reminds us of God's servant's 
weakness. God's servant's weakness. As a Nazarite set apart to God, Samson was called to remain pure and undefiled. And to this end, according to God's law given back in Numbers chapter 6, Samson was to abstain from wine or strong drink. He wasn't allowed to cut his hair, and he couldn't have any contact with the dead. The angel had informed Manoah and his wife of these provisions. And so one would think that they passed them along to their son, because at this point, we know Samson's hair remains uncut. So almost certainly, he's also kept these other two requirements. However, seeing this carcass, he stops. It's almost like as he's going to his wedding, he has to stop by and just see, did this really happen? Did I, did I really experience this expression of supernatural power? And sure enough, there's this carcass. And he finds this, rather than finding this bloated, maggot-filled mass, he finds a dry cavity containing bees and their honey, which, as a man, as we've seen, driven by his senses, serves as a test of character now. Will he remember his calling? He passed that test of strength, so-called, with flying colors. What about this test of character? And the answer is no, as we see. Not at all. He, without hesitation, scoops this honey out, defiles himself, and then deceitfully defiles his parents as he later shares his find with them. So far from being the hero as we're reading this story that we would all love Samson to be, our author allows us to see this man's glaring faults, which only grow as the text continues in verse 10. As now, we're told, his father went down to see the woman. And Samson made a feast there, as was customary for bridegrooms. When he appeared, he was given 30 companions. Let me tell you a riddle, Samson said to them. If you can give me the answer within seven days of the feast, I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 sets of clothes. If you can't tell me the answer, you must give me 30 linen garments and 30 sets of clothes. Tell us your riddle, they said. Let's hear it. And here's where I believe we see the evidence of God's providence continuing to flow, kind of like a stream, a current beneath the story's surface. As Samson replies, out of the eater, something to eat. Out of the strong, something sweet. For three days, we're told, they could not give the answer. On the fourth day, they said to Samson's wife, coax your husband into explaining the riddle for us, or we'll burn you and your father's household to death. Did you invite us here to rob us? Then Samson's wife threw herself on him, sobbing, you hate me. You don't really love me. You've given my people a riddle, but you haven't told me the answer. I haven't even explained it to my father or mother, he replied. So why should I explain it to you? She cried the whole seven days of the feast. So on the seventh day, he finally told her because she continued to press him. She, in turn, explained the riddle to her people. Before sunset on the seventh day, the men of the town said to him, What is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? Samson said to them, If you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have solved my riddle. Then... The Spirit of the Lord came upon him in power. He went down to Ashkelon, struck down 30 of their men, stripped them of their belongings, and gave their clothes to those who had explained the riddle. Burning with anger, he went to his father's house, and Samson's wife was given to the friend who had attended him at his wedding. Church, isn't it incre incredible how God takes the very thing that Samson failed in, the very thing, his character test, if you will, and God turns it into his occasion for victory over the Philistines. This riddle, based on the lion, becomes the trigger, revealing God, both God's strength and his servant's weakness. God's strength and his servant's weakness. Now, there's so much that we could comment on here in this, 
this text regarding Samson's lack of love for both his parents, who he keeps in the dark as well to the meaning of this riddle, and his wife, whom he also kept the same secret from, and then later refers to as a heifer. <laughs> I've made some poor choice references to my lovely bride in the past, but I am thankful to say I have never called her that, nor will I ever. But we could also note the symbolism conveyed by this riddle here as the sweet honey is surrounded by the, the death of this lion's carcass just as God's chosen people were surrounded by Canaan's pagan peoples. We could also lament Samson's disregard for the second of his Nazaretic distinctions, abstinence from wine, because that feast, so-called in our NIV, translates a Hebrew term that in this context referenced a seven-day drinking bout that was connected to the marriage celebration, and all of this took place at the in-law's house. So all of these points merit elaboration, but for the sake of time this morning and for the key point here that I believe is trying to be communicated, our author is communicating, and that is of God's providence. So what I want us to see is how this lion led to a riddle, a riddle that then led to a weepy wife, a weepy wife that led to a solution that led to Samson's rage that led to the death of 30 Philistines. So while Samson is the one living all of this out, making all of these choices, revealing his sinful heart in the process, God is sovereignly directing the story, working behind the scenes, if you will, to ensure it's his purposes that come to pass. And churches, as we consider our own lives in light of this truth, would the hope of God's providence fill us with joy? Because I believe it demonstrates the certainty of God's salvation and the depth of his love. For the God who promised to save Israel, as we heard Isaiah proclaim when we first began this morning, the God who promised to save Israel has promised to save all who call on him. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. God promised to save Israel. And nothing could prevent that from happening. As we've seen to this point, our authors displayed God's strength, contrast against his servant's weakness. And then, as the series or the story continues, I believe he further desires to communicate his enemy's impotence. His enemy's impotence. This is revealed in the escalation of events that follow, captured in chapter 15, that's also colored by a, a dark humor. And so, why don't you look with me now at chapter 15 and verse 1. Chapter 15, verse 1 continues. Later on, at the time of the wheat harvest, Samson took a young goat and went to visit his wife. He said, I'm going to my wife's room. Her father would not let him go in. I was so sure you thoroughly hated her, he said. I gave her to your friend. Isn't her younger sister more attractive? Take her instead. Samson said to them, this time I have a right to get even with the Philistines. I will really harm them. So he went out and caught 300 foxes and tied them tail to tail in pairs. He then fastened a torch to every pair of tails. He lit the torches and let the foxes loose in the standing grain of the Philistines. He burned up the shocks and the standing grain together with the vineyards and olive groves. When the Philistines asked, who did this? They were told Samson, the Timnite's son-in-law, because his wife was given to his friend. So the Philistines went up and burned her and her father to death. Samson said to them, since you've acted like this, I won't stop until I get my revenge on you. He attacked them viciously and slaughtered many of them. Then he went and stayed in a cave in the rock of Etham. So the humor I mentioned of being dark is so only because of the outcome. But can you imagine the scene as it begins there? Samson standing outside of his father-in-law's house with a little goat, bleh, hoping to spend some quality time 
with his bride, only to find out she's been given to his friend, one of the guys who guessed the riddle. You know, add insult to injury. And at this point, Samson declares himself justified in taking vengeance on the Philistines, saying, this time I have a right to get even. I will really harm them. And and then what's interesting about that term harm there, as it's used by our author, verse 3, is that it's the same term that he chose to use back in chapter 9, verse 23, to describe God's Spirit's action when God's Spirit disrupted the relationship between Abimelech and between Shechem. And that's a point that I believe further reveals Samson's actions here as fulfilling God's providential plan. And then we have this bizarre, but effective, but this bizarre fox or this jackal, depending on your translation, capture, after which he ties these these animals together by their tails, attaches a burning torch. Now, whatever the symbolism or significance, whatever significance there might be to this action, the end result is the destruction of all of the Philistines' grain stores, at which point then the lighthearted theme of our story goes dark, as I said, while its principal point, I believe, is only enhanced because the weepy wife, who'd been so desperate pestering her husband in order to avoid being burned to death by her countrymen along with her father, ends up being burned to death by her countrymen along with her father. And church, this is just one instance, one instance in the scriptures of many that reveal the truth that people may act as though they are the masters of their own fate, the captains of their own souls. But as one biblical scholar words it, the hidden providences of God are able to bring the schemes and conducts of human beings down on their own heads and thereby accomplish His purposes. Because in their belief here, in their belief, the Philistines' belief that they were avenging their losses, they were only securing their judgment, weren't they? As Samson now responds by slaughtering, we're told, many of them before retiring to rest in a cave. At which point we read verse 9. The Philistines went up and camped in Judah, spreading out near Lehi. The men of Judah asked, Why have you come to fight us? We haven't... We've come to take Samson prisoner, they answered, to do to him as he did to us. Then 3,000 men from Judah went to the cave in the rock of Edom and said to Samson, Don't you realize that the Philistines are rulers over us? What have you done to us? He answered, I merely did to them what they did to me. They said to him, We've come to tie you up and hand you over to the Philistines. Samson said, Swear to me that you won't kill me yourselves. Agreed. They answered, we'll only tie you up and hand you over to them. We will not kill you. So they bound him with two new ropes and led him up from the rock. As he approached Lehi, the Philistines came toward him shouting, the spirit of the Lord came upon him in power. The ropes on his arms became like charred flax and the bindings dropped from his hands, finding a fresh jawbone of a donkey. He grabbed it and struck down a thousand men. Then Samson said, With the donkey's jawbone, I've made donkeys of them. With the donkey's jawbone, I've killed a thousand men. When he'd finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone, and the place was called Ramath-Lehi. So in this this interaction, the human factor lightens a little. If you can call the slaughter of a thousand guys with a donkey jawbone less dark than the burning alive of a Philistine family. But we might not find this story amusing But Samson certainly did, as revealed by his monologue there, verse 16, aimed at celebrating his victory and belittling his enemies at the same time. But it's a mockery of his opponents that sadly includes no reference to Yahweh or of his enabling. And church, the impotence 
of the Philistines in the face of God's Savior here is it's so clearly captured in this violent end as they're destroyed by a man without conventional weapons or support. So I mean, Samson's all alone. It's a fact revealing God's providence, I believe, even more starkly as it's his own people who turn him over to the Philistines. Faced with the decision to join God's man or fight for freedom, Israel reveals the depth of their apostasy here. They don't even, they don't even seem to countenance the idea. All they cared about was maintaining the status quo. And so they betray God's deliverer, who then, in God's providence, destroys a thousand men, despite the fact that he's employing a fresh bone from a dead donkey. So it's not even one that's had time to dry out. And guys, in this action, again, I believe, reveals Samson's disregard for his Nazaretic vows. But in this action, I believe we see the great salvation of God because, by all accounts, Samson has already broken all of his vows. And therefore, he no longer stands in a covenant relationship with Yahweh. And yet, yet, God provides his people with a salvation that he promised, even though they didn't want it. And not because of any special qualities of Samson. Church, I believe our author was desperate to capture how God's salvation is so great because it is providentially guaranteed. And it's a fact confirmed then by God's provision of his servants' needs. God's provision of his servants' needs. Describe verse 18, where because he's very thirsty, this is Samson, he cries out to the Lord, you've given your servant this great victory. Must I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? Then God opened up the hollow place in Lehi, and water came out of it. When Samson drank, his strength was returned, and he revived. So the spring was called En-Hakor, and it's still there in Lehi. Samson led Israel for 20 years in the days of the Philistines. So, into chapter 15, we see that God has done exactly, exactly what he said he would do. And he's done it in spite of a deliverer as unworthy as Samson, and a people as unworthy deserving as Israel. Even in his provision of water here at the end, we're, while we might be tempted to think, finally, Samson's recognized God's aid, but his naming of this spring reveals the depth of his depravity because en hakor means spring of the caller or spring of the one who named. So this continued self-focus and emphasis on his role in the spring's provision and it's memorializing, if you will, his power to manipulate and to move God's hand rather than acknowledging God's gracious provision on his behalf. And yet, God still saves his people just as he promised. And church, I believe that Samson's story is, is a proclamation of God's providence. And it's a truth that we can even more we see more starkly if we were to read this whole thing in reverse. Beginning with Enakor that received its name. Why? Because Samson was revived by the waters of Lehi. Samson was revived by the waters of Lehi. Why? Because God opened up a hollow place and water came out. God opened up a hollow place. Why? Because Samson cried out. Samson cried out because he was thirsty. He was thirsty because he had exhausted himself slaying a thousand guys. Samson threw a, slew a thousand Philistines. Why? Because they'd come to capture him. They'd come to capture him because Judah had taken or had handed him over. Judah had handed him over. Why? Because Samson had sought refuge in their territory. He sought refuge in their territory because the Philistines were after him. Philistines were after him. Why? Because he'd ruthlessly slaughtered many of their men. He'd slaughtered many of their men because they'd burned his wife and father-in-law. Why? The Philistines had burned his wife and father-in-law because he'd burned their crops. 
incense and burn their crops because his father-in-law gave his wife to another man. His father-in-law gave his wife to another man. Why? Well, because Samson returned home to his father's house. He returned home to his father's house because the Ashkelonites were after him. Why were the Ashkelonites after him? Well, because he killed 30 of their men. Samson killed 30 of their men because the Philistines solved his riddle. The Philistines solved his riddle because they plowed with his heifer. Philistines plowed with Samson's heifer. Why? Because she was his wife. She was his wife. Why? Because he wanted her. Samson wanted this Timnite woman. Why? All the way back to where we started. Because Yahweh was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines. Church, that's the providence of God. Providence of God on display, revealing the greatness of his salvation. Do you know his salvation? Because you can. Because just as God promised to save Israel, he has promised to save all who confess their sin and believe in Jesus. Do you know him? I hope and pray that you do in church, for we who do, may we take joy in the knowledge that that which God has promised, he will do. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you are God. Lord, and we use that term so often, so flippantly, without grasping the, the weight of what it means to be God as you've revealed yourself in the scriptures is to be holy, is to be sovereign, to be the God who can do all that he has said he will do and that none can thwart your plan. Father, we thank you for how in the story of Samson we see your promised Savior despite his flaws and despite your people's sin still being used by you to fulfill your purposes. Revealing your people's need of a Savior and pointing them to the promised Savior who one day while unlike Samson in his flailing, weakness, would just like Samson provide God's people with salvation, a salvation that none can take. Father, thank you for giving us hope in Jesus. Thank you that as we face the uncertainty of tomorrow, we can rest assured because we know that you have promised that you will be faithful to bring your name glory and that you will watch over us, your church, and use us for your glory. God, we pray this morning if there are any that don't share that hope, Lord, but having heard of your promise and how you offer that salvation to all who would confess their sin and believe, God, if there are any today who have yet to make that decision, we pray that this would be that day, God, for those that might have been wrestling with a commitment and a work that you've already begun in their life, God, may this, maybe this would be the day that they would stand before your people and acknowledge you as God. Lord, we thank you that we may stand on these truths because your word declares them. We pray these things in your name. Amen.